but yeah, 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 not yet. Was, yeah, okay. Did move last summer. We are. Here we go. All right, welcome everyone. People rolling in right on the hour. Um, so <laughs> good evening. I'm so glad to see everyone. We're so happy that you've made the time to learn with us here at Drisha in our final class uh, before Rosh Hashanah. It has been such a privilege for us to have delivered over 20 hours of quality Torah over the past couple of weeks. And we're glad that there is apparently still room for more. And we're especially delighted to welcome back Dr. Svinovic to teach on the visitation of Sarah in Madrash and Piyut. On the first day of Rosh Hashanah, we read of how God visited or took note of Sarah. In this session, we will examine an interrelated set of texts and Madrash and early Piyut that reflect and expand on this event. These texts will offer subtle insight into the rabbi's understanding of the Bible, their own narratives and aesthetics, which is to say the sorts of stories they like to tell, and the development of rabbinic literature. Dr. Zvinovic is the Abrams Jewish Thought and Culture Professor of Theology at the University of Notre Dame. His research focuses on early rabbinic literature and on Jewish liturgical poetry. So um, a few <laughs> housekeeping technical notes while we're here. For those of you joining us on Zoom, uh, I'll send you an invitation to become a panelist. That does not obligate you to do anything, but it will allow you into the room, so to speak, so you can turn on your camera if you so wish. We'd love to see your face. And you'll be able to unmute when Dr. Novik invites questions, but please do stay muted when you are not intending to share your audio with us. Um, you also have the option of sharing questions and comments here in the chat on Zoom, or if you're joining us on Facebook Live, you can put your questions and comments directly below the video in the comments section. So without further ado, Dr. Novik, please. Great, thank you very much, Noah. Um, pleasure to be learning with you, and thanks for making the time so close to Rosh Hashanah. Uh, I was sometime an abstract to describe the talk you envision giving a month, maybe two months before you're giving it, and then by the time the talk comes around, uh, you discover that you want to say something else. So I was glad hearing the abstract from Noah that I had sent. Uh, that I do in fact uh, want to do more or less what she described uh, as my plan for this talk. And uh, and I'd like to engage with you rather than um, lecture at you um, to ask some questions and get your uh, feedback and get your responses. Uh, and you should feel free also to ask questions. Let me know also if the audio is an issue or if anything is unclear. Um, and but I'll be mindful of the time, again, um, given especially uh, the approaching um, well Shabbat and then uh, again, and I may then have to um, cut discussion short depending on it. All right, so on the uh, let, let me get right down to things. And um, now, if you'd like to uh, post that uh, source sheet to the chat uh, at this point, uh, that would be great. Um, so I'll I'll also share the source sheet with you. Uh, on the first day of Rosh Hashanah, as Noah mentioned in that introduction, we read Genesis 21. Uh, and so here is, um, uh, let's scroll up here. Here are the first two verses of Genesis 21. The Lord took note of Sarah. This is the NJPS translation. The Lord took note of Sarah as he had promised, and the Lord did for Sarah as he had spoken. Sarah conceived and bore a son to Abraham in his, in his old age at the set time of which God had spoken. And then the, the chapter continues with the circumcision of Yitzchak and his weaning. And then there is this conflict, uh, or, or, or Sarah, in any case, Sarah detects a, uh, something in Ishmael that, uh, that leads her to, to wish to expel Ishmael and his mother Hagar from, 
the home, uh, and that's what happens. Uh, Abraham does so, and um, Ishmael has this near-death experience in the wilderness when the water runs out. So there's that whole story, and then the chapter ends with um, the chapter ends with uh, a covenant between Abraham, Abraham, and Abimelech, the king of Gura. And so the question is the first question is why do we read Genesis 21 on the first day of Rosh Hashanah? So according to the Mishnah, that's not what we read. We're supposed to be reading something else. The 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 account of Rosh Hashanah in Leviticus, this kind of very brief account that occurs in Parashat uh, Emor. But the Tosefta, uh, which is an early rabbinic composition composed a little bit later than the Mishnah, mentions this as the reading for Rosh Hashanah. And the question is why? Why read this on Rosh Hashanah? What does this have to do with Rosh Hashanah? So let me open that to you. If you have any suggestions, um, feel free to unmute yourself and speak up. What is the, what's the connection to Rosh Hashanah? Uh, and I can't necessarily see hands. I see Yael, and then yes, please. Uh, One thing that jumps out at me is that Sarah felt she was forgotten by Hashem so long so many years and and the fulfillment of her life which would have been a child it seemed like Hashem hadn't heard her mm. and now as we approach the Hagim um we may have that feeling and so we go into the the times of Chuva thinking that God hasn't heard us and and it's so fulfilling when we go through this whole ritual of emotion and then at the at the very end of Yom Kippur, um, Hashem says to us, "Shemati bekolet, Shemati et kolecha." I've heard you. Mm -hmm. I see you. I hear you. Mm -hmm. And it, it's meaningful. So this is a parallel that I see. Okay, great, great. Yeah. So there is a kind of uh, particularly sort of close encounter with God, and uh bihi otokarov. I call to Him. Uh, when he is close to you, there's a kind of intimacy uh, so that by contrast, we are at a certain distance from God in general, and then in Elul, and then with the Amin Noraim, we have a kind of um, uh, nearness to God and a, and, a, and a sort of responsiveness. So that's kind of echoed in Sarah. Um, okay, yeah, that's interesting. Right. We, we'd still want to kind of explore why Sarah's, the, 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 this particular instance of God's responsiveness, uh, as opposed to another one. Um, but, uh, but that's an interesting, uh, that's an interesting idea. Um, yeah, other, other thoughts about, um, what, um, what the connection is between this passage, Genesis 21 and Rosh Hashanah. Um, Michal. Uh, yeah, uh, is that right? Is that Michal? Yeah, hi, thanks. <laughs> okay. So I'll speak for myself for a moment. I'm always painfully aware that Hashem's relationship with female biblical characters mm. is completely absent from the Zichronot in the liturgy. Mm. And then I'm always really grateful or touched that that seems to be compensated for in a way with the Torah and the Haftarah readings. And what jumps out at me here specifically is Hashem Pakad at Sarah, which isn't exactly Liskor, but it feels that way to me. And I'm always curious if these readings were included like deliberately with that in mind. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's great. That's great. Yeah, I, I think that that that, that is um, the, um, a key, perhaps probably the key element, I think, in the in, in the link. Uh, so, right. So, as you mentioned, um, there is this reference to pakad, uh, right? This is how the the, the chapter begins. Bashem pakad Sarah, the Lord, in the NJPS translation, took note of Sarah, um, and that isn't right. There, that isn't quite the language of uh, remembering, um, but it is, as we'll see in a moment, parallel to it. And uh, remembering Zikaron is a crucial motif on Rosh Hashanah. It's arguably the central motif on Rosh Hashanah. When we think of 
the way in which Rosh Hashanah is described in the Torah. It's not described as Rosh Hashanah. It's described as Zifron uh, Tru'ah, um, a remembrance and uh, a, well, Tru'ah, uh, shouting of some sort or uh, um, sounding of some sort. In Ya'alev Yavo, in various kind of prayers for Rosh Hashanah, Rosh Hashanah is described as Yom Zikaron, the Day of Remembrance. Uh, and uh, as Michal was mentioning, one of the three main motifs in Musaf or Rosh Hashanah uh, is the Zichron, uh, the remembrances. And interestingly, uh, as Michal mentioned, Sarah has not mentioned among them. Uh, but nevertheless, this is a, perhaps arguably, the central theme of Rosh Hashanah, God's remembering. And, uh, and um, probably this passage is chosen because uh, we have here this act of, uh, of God's remembrance. Um, and this choice of Genesis 21 for the reading for Rosh Hashanah is certainly co connected with the tradition that you have in source two in the handout, Genesis Rabbah, uh, namely that this event, this God, of God remembering Sarah, in fact occurred on Rosh Hashanah. So this is source two that I'll read. This is from the rabbi's commentary on the book of Genesis, an Amorea commentary. On the new year, Sarah, Rachel, and Hannah, Sarah, Rachel, and Hannah were called, called to mind. And the proof text, now God remembered Rachel. It's not really a proof text because uh, that verse uh, does not really place the remembering of Rachel on Rosh Hashanah, uh, how exactly we come to this determination that these things happen in Rosh Hashanah is a, um, is a, a question unto itself. Um, but in any case, though, uh, we, ha we have this tradition that this event happened on Rosh Hashanah, um, but at the root of it is this notion that Rosh Hashanah is Yom HaZikaron, is the day of remembrance, Zichron Tru'ah, and while the verb that's used in the case of Sarah is pakad, it's essentially synonymous with zakhar. In fact, the zikronot, uh, the, the, the zikronot blessing, the, the second of these three Rosh Hashanah specific Musaf blessings, um, features this par a parallelism between zakhar and pakad. olam is how we begin the you remember deeds from forever and call to mind all creatures from of old. Atazucher upoked. Zucher poked, more or less the same. Um, all right, so, so um, what I'd like to do is to consider how the sages, um, Chazal are, uh, and um, those uh, connected with them, uh, how they understood this passage, uh, or how in particular they understood this uh, divine calling to mind of Sarah, and how they understood its connection to Rosh Hashanah. And I want to begin with a source not from Chazal, but from Piyut, from early liturgical poetry. Piyut, right, is the kind of thing that we don't pay much attention to in general. Uh, but uh, this is the high time for Piyut. Of course, we have Slichot that began last month, Shabbat, uh, that feature Piyutim, these poems, um, every day. And then on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, we have lots of Piyutim, Melech uh, Elyon, Netanet Tokef, etc. Those things that can right, sometimes make the Tfilah seem a bit interminable, uh, but uh, but are really rich, uh, very rich. Um, um, in in exegesis and in interpretation and in theology, and the greatest of the Paitanim, um, certainly of the early Paitanim, was Kalir or Kilir. And there's an edition of all of his extant piyutim for Rosh Hashanah that was uh, edited and uh, well, with a very long introduction and commentary by Shulamit Alitsur and Michael Rand, um, two uh, two great scholars of piyut. And this source, source three on the handout, is an excerpt from one of Kalir's piyutim for Rosh Hashanah. 
Uh, and you can see it has that characteristic feature of Piyut, namely alphabetical acrostic. If you look at those three lines, you see Dalit Bav. I'm not going to give the whole context for the Piyut because that would be a class unto itself. Um, but here are the, the three lines of interest. This is my attempt at a translation of very um, difficult poetry. He murmured, today I am put to judgment. Here I am, woeful and too worn for pleasure. She was sealed for righteousness, not to be alone. All right, so we have here a speech by Sarah. Today I am put to judgment. Here I am, woeful uh, and too worn for pleasure. The truth is now that I look at it, I think probably today shouldn't be part of her speech. Probably it should be, she murmured today, colon, I am put to judgment. Uh, and so Kalir, the poet, is saying that today, that is the day on which we are praying this prayer, on which we are saying this text, um, uh, she said as follows, I am put to judgment, here I am, woeful and too worn for pleasure. Um, and then comes the response, she was sealed for righteousness, not to be alone. Um, okay, so so Kalir here, this is a piyut that we don't say today. Some we do continue today to say some of the PU team that Kalir wrote, um, but most of them uh, have fallen out of the various liturgical traditions. So this one we don't say, but um, we are, we, uh, Kalir here is imagining a tefillah that, uh, or a reflection anyhow, uh, something that's going on in Sarah's mind. Uh, I am put to judgment, here I am woeful and too worn for pleasure. And, uh, and then she was sealed for righteousness, not to be alone. So the question is, when is Kalir imagining Sarah saying this prayer or saying this uh, or reflecting in this way? I don't know if we could call it a prayer, really. All right, this is the in invention of Kalir, as we'll see, it has its precedence in rabbinic literature. Um, but where in the biblical timeline does this fit, uh, right? Where is when, at what point is Sarah saying this? I am put to judgment, here I am woeful and too worn for pleasure, and then she was sealed for righteousness. So yeah, curious uh, if anyone has any any thoughts about this, where do you think, there's no help from the context in terms of what, um, so uh, the, there is more context here, obviously this is the fourth, fifth and sixth lines of the poem, uh, there are plenty of others uh, because it's the alphabetical acrostic, um, but uh, any thoughts on, uh, when Kalir is imagining Sarah reciting this prayer? When in the biblical timeline, the story of Sarah's life? Um, I have a hand from Madeline. It seems like it would be right before the passage that you just read from, from Genesis 21. We were kind of imagining a moment in which she's sitting, she's been given this promise a long time ago, but a long time has passed and she feels like it's too late. I'm I'm too worn out for for the pleasure of a child at this point. Um, uh, a very very good. Now, when you say she was given this promise a long time ago, what do you what do you mean by that? When, when was she given this promise? Um, way back when Abraham first found out he was going to have a child. Ah, ah very good, very good. Well, okay, yeah. So 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 this is the tricky thing, and we're get, we're getting we're going to be getting into like details of the biblical timeline, like down to months. And so, but but our point here is not to plot a, a biblical chronology. Is uh, the, the the point is to get at the kind of the theological meaningfulness here. Uh, but we need to do that by doing some plotting on a timeline. So right. So when does that promise happen? In fact, um, so of course Abraham Abraham has promised a child. Abraham has promised descendants. You know, from Lecha, from the moment that he leaves uh, his his home. Um, but uh, but it's not clear. Um, how that promise is going to come about. Um, yes. Through whom, right, well, through, through whom that promise is going to occur. Um, so um, the, right, the, the kind of assurance, as it were, that it's going to come through Sarah happens, um, well, 
most clearly, I suppose, or the, the, the story that's, that's most um, uh, well known to, uh, to, uh, to us is in Genesis 18 and Rashid Yuchat, when the angels, when these three men visit um, Abraham uh, and tell him that Sarah is going to have a child the following year. Um, but it's also mentioned at, at the, the very end of the previous chapter in Bereshit Yudzayin, in connection with uh, the command of Brit Mila, the commandment of circumcision. Um, so, well, um, so I mentioned th th this text was edited by uh, Shulamit Elitzor and Michael Rand. In their commentary, they, they, they seem to be thinking as follows. Um, we're working with, we assume that Kalir had this timeline that you see in source four. Source four is from an early rabbinic, a Tanaitic exegesis of um, uh, the book of Exodus, Sefer Shmot, called Mechiltid Rabbi Ishmael. So it precedes Kalir. Kalir, I didn't give much in the way of a biography, of a biography. I guess I gave nothing in the way of a biography, but Kalir lived in Israel in um, just before, very soon before the um, Muslim conquest of Israel, the Muslim defeat of the Byzantines and, and its conquest, of, uh, conquest. So he lived in the Byzantine Empire in Byzantine Palestine, in the land of Israel, um, early um, late sixth century or seventh century, maybe late sixth century. Uh, in any case, this text, source four, is, is much earlier. Something that Khalil clearly knew uh, from the third century, and I'll read it. Hamisha Sabinisan. Hmm. Oh, okay. The, uh, type that So on the 15th of Nisan, Abraham, our father, was spoken to at the covenant between the parts. That's in Genesis 15. On the 15th of Nisan, the ministering angels came to Abraham, our father, to tell him the good news. That's, can I modify this? I can, yeah. That is, that we should say that was Genesis 18. Uh, and on the 15th of Nisan, Isaac was born. That is Genesis 21. So all of these things happened on Pesach. Um, and this is a, a tradition that's attested elsewhere that Yitzchak was born on Pesach. And the announcement of Yitzchak's birth was a year before, also in Pesach. Um, Abraham is described, right, he asks, uh, um, 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 right, they, they prepare Matzot, right, and so the, the, um, that's not the only reason, but uh, for, for this assumption, but the assumption is that the visit of the angels in Genesis 18 came on Pesach, and then Yitzchak is born a year later on Pesach as well, and the Pripen of the Karim also on Pesach. And so, Elitzur and Rand in their commentary to Kalir's poem say that Sarah uh, utters this prayer, I am put to judgment, here I am woeful and too worn for pleasure. She recite, he, she's saying this on Rosh Hashanah, right? Because uh, that's what she, uh, right, she murmured today, right? That is to say the day on which we now are praying this prayer, uh, are reciting this text is when she did this and she was sealed for righteousness, she was judged and, and, and given and sealed for, uh, for a good judgment uh, that she would not, in fact, be um, childless. So but on which Rosh Hashanah did that happen? So uh, in their commentary, they say that this is the Rosh Hashanah before Genesis 18. The Rosh Hashanah before uh, the angels come to visit. Uh, and that is possible, that is possible, but it's a little bit odd. It's a little bit odd, that kind of claim, because, well, elsewhere in rabbinic literature, the rabbis really don't have anything to say about the Rosh Hashanah before the angelic visit. Uh, and also the Rosh Hashanah before the angelic visit is not really um, any different from the Rosh, the, the Rosh Hashanah before that, um, or the Rosh Hashanah before that. It's been a long time that Sarah has been childless, um, and so it would be odd for Kalir to be reflecting on or inventing, inventing or creating a story um, for a Rosh Hashanah that kind of really can't be distinguished in itself from any other uh, Rosh Hashanah in uh, Sarah's life. 
but again, of course, we're being anachronistic here, projecting Rosh Hashanah back into Saran, all of that, but that is par for the course for the narratives. Um, so I, so I think it, but what, but why, why do Eli Tur and Rand say that? Why, why do they, in their commentary, place this uh, murmuring of Saran uh, in Source 3? Why do they place that in the Rosh Hashanah before the angels come to visit Abraham and announce that Sarah will have a child? Presumably they do that because the thinking is, well, once the angels have come and said Sarah is going to have a baby next year, then um, then why would Sarah on the Rosh, Hash Rosh Hashanah afterward, why would she be saying, to, uh, I am put to judgment, here I am, woeful and too worn for pleasure. She was promised, to, the angels just came and said she's going to be having a baby next year. And so that's presumably why uh, Elitzer and Rand say that it must be the Rosh Hashanah before the angels came. But um, but but I want to make the um, suggestion that Khalir is in fact talking, is in fact imagining Sarah saying this on the Rosh Hashanah after the angels come, and this is telling us something uh, quite important um, about um, well um, well um, rabbinic and even really biblical theology and about um, the kinds of stories that uh, the rabbis tell. So here's my thinking. My thinking is that um, the way Khalir is imagining this, and as we'll see, he is, he is, I think it's quite clear, following the lead of earlier rabbis on this. Khalir is thinking that the angels have come in Genesis 18, promised that Sarah is going to have a child, but now six months have passed. Um, Right, so it was uh, Nisan when they came, and now it is Tishrei, Rosh Hashanah. Sarah is not visibly pregnant. Um, she uh, doesn't know whether, uh, as far as she knows, she has not conceived. Maybe in fact she has not. Um, and um, and she um, she is in in, in anguish, um, right? And and it, because the truth is, on the rabbinic view, there is in fact a a six-month gap between when the angels come and when Sarah conceives. Right? If you put together sources two and four, there's a six-month gap, uh, right? Because the angels come on in Nisan, um, but it's only um, um, on the New Year on uh, on Rosh Hashanah that God calls Sarah to mind uh, and she conceives. That's the continuation of that verse in Je Genesis 30:22. In source two, God remembered Rachel, um, and He opened her womb. Right, so the remembering or the visiting is a matter of conception. So there's a six-month gap between the promise and the conception. And I admit that um, until I sat down to kind of think about the text of Khalir, I'd never really thought about that gap between the promise and the actual conception. Uh, and charitably, I mean, speaking charitably, or in giving myself uh, uh, the, the benefit of the doubt, I would say I hadn't thought about it because the Bible, the biblical text itself, doesn't really seem very interested in that gap or, or in Sarah's thoughts during that gap of six months. In fact, the Bible itself never even says how long that gap was. Uh, it never says how much time passes between Genesis 18, when the angels come, and Genesis 21, when Sarah, when God um, calls Sarah to mind, and she conceives. But the rabbis are interested in that. Well, the rabbis put a the rabbis put, do establish an amount of time, six months, and six months is a long time. That's time enough for Sarah to wonder, what about this promise? Will it really come true? Maybe it was just some cruel joke by these three guys. Um, and the truth is, even though this particular line of uh, of interpretation, line of exegetical narrative that we see emerging from the way the rabbis are reading Genesis 18 through 21, even though that is something that the rabbis are doing, that's not necessarily to be found in the biblical text itself, they are true to the dynamic of promise and plot in the Bible. Right? Because you might think that a divine promise would mean the end of your worries, right? You might think if God tells you um, 
you're going to have children through Yitzchak, then you can sit back and uh, enjoy life secure in uh, the promise of succession through Yitzchak. Uh, but no, in fact, God could tell you the next day to sacrifice Yitzchak. Uh, and what of that promise? Well, who knows? Maybe that wasn't really God making that promise. Maybe I committed some sin in the interim uh, that changed God's plan. Um, or again, you might think, um, thinking about um, thinking about uh, Yaakov, right? That if your father Yitzhak conveys to you in this uh, kind of prophetic way, a divine blessing of future prosperity for you and for your offspring, then you needn't fear the plotting of your father-in-law, Lavan, um, or the potential violence of your brother, um, Esau. Uh, but Jacob does fear, Yaakov does fear, he's very fearful, um, and uh, he acts in response to that fear. Uh, so the idea is that, uh, and this is kind of constitutive of the, the, the dynamics of plotting in Tanakh, uh, and especially in Bereshit. Uh, where there is a promise, and, and this is the dynamic of the Yosef story kind of throughout. There is a promise, and there is clearly divine providence. But on the other hand, um, that doesn't uh, dictate, that doesn't determine uh, the actions of individuals uh, at any kind of level of detail. Uh, and it doesn't free them from anxiety and worry about their future. Uh, so the fact that Sarah is promised in so many words um, a child in Genesis 18 doesn't suddenly eliminate the pain or the anxiety of barrenness. Um, and I think what Kalir is doing over here in Source 3 is giving voice to this pain and to this, uh, and to this doubt. And so she offers this tefillah on Rosh Hashanah six months after the promise. Uh, and God responds immediately. This is to get back to Madeline's point that this is connected with Source 3. And God responds immediately. And, and he um, and, and Sarah conceives. That would make, um, if we're if you're thinking about the timeline, that would mean that uh, Yaakov, that, that, that would mean that Yitzchak is born uh, after six and a half months of pregnancy because he's going to be born by the following Pesach, uh, six and a half months after Rosh Hashanah. How exactly that works out um, uh, is not something that Hazal spell out, um, though they do actually try to work out something like that, albeit with a different time scheme in Badli Rosh Hashanah, Yud Aleph, Amud Aleph, Ayin Sham, see there for further details if you're interested in that particular aspect of this problem. Um, but in any case, uh, that I think is how Kalir is understanding it. He may even be understanding um, the, the verb, uh, this this pakad, um, this uh, Pakad calling to mind as specifically an act of responding to prayer. It is notable, uh, this is source five, this is this verse that is cited as a proof text or, uh, in, in source two. This is the full verse. Now God remembered Rachel, God heeded her and opened her womb. And so there you see remembering or calling to mind of the barren woman. Um, connected with God hearing her. Uh, and so that, I think, is one of the strands. There are many different strands. Um, we see uh, here maybe uh, an implicit, at least how this is how rabbis might have read it, an implicit um, notion of uh, Rachel praying for a child. Of course, Yitzchak, in other rabbinic understanding, both Yitzchak and Rivka pray for a child. Uh, and so that by extension, uh, Sarah would be praying. Uh, and Hashem Pakadet Sarah, Genesis 21, is God uh, responding to that prayer and responding immediately, and the conception occurs then, six months after it was promised. Um, so, uh, so I, I, I mentioned that I thought that Kalir actually that, that, that actually has a precedent for this. If we understand Kalir this way, not the way um, Elitzur and Rendu in their commentary that Sarah is that is praying before. The angels came because why? Why? Because her worries would be um, she would be free of worry after they come. But rather, no. In fact, she's praying after the angels have come. I think we see that precisely in uh, in Chazal. In fact, in um, in Genesis Rabbah, another passage in Genesis Rabbah. So again, Genesis Rabbah, this uh, Amorea commentary 
uh, on uh, Bereshit, uh, composed uh, or edited maybe a century before Kalir. Um, so uh, this passage is a little bit uh, longer and complicated. Um, I'll read it. Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll read it through and maybe pause to um, explain as we go. Uh, and if you have the source sheet separately, you can look at the English, but I'll also scroll down to it after I get through the Hebrew text. Um, so what's going on here is that um, the story of Abraham and Sarah is being read, uh, read into or read in conversation with a passage from Habakkuk, um, not one uh, necessarily our go-to biblical text, um, but uh, a very interesting one, um, cited uh, partly on um, uh, Shavuot for the Haftarah. Uh, for the fig tree does not blossom. That's the quotation from Habakkuk. What does that refer to? Ze Abraham. This is Abraham. Just as we say, uh, So there's a verse that connects the fathers with a fig tree. So that enables us to say that when Habakkuk says, the fig tree has not blossomed, that's actually a reference to Abraham. And then the continuation in Habakkuk, uh, there is no fruit on the vines. So Sarah, that's a reference to Sarah. And how do we know that? Because there's a verse that says, uh, your wife will be like a fruitful vine. So there we have a link between a woman and the vine. And so when Habakkuk refers to the vine and says that there's no fruit on the vine, that's Sarah. Now we continue on in Habakkuk, the next phrase. Uh, the produce of the olive tree has failed. Otan hamal achim should be through at Sarah. Heiru paneha kezayit kichasim hayu. So those angels who told the good news to Sarah, uh, they lit up her face like an olive. Um, and we see that association between uh, olives and shining. Um, elsewhere, for example, in Tehillim. Uh, and so her face shone when she received that news from the angels, but now they have failed. So, so when Chavakuk says, uh, that the olive trees have failed, Chavakuk, of course, is, is describing a, a, a famine uh, where uh, the trees are not producing fruit. Um, but each of these things is being read as, as the narrative of Abraham and Sarah. And when he says that the, that the olive trees have failed, the work of the olive trees has failed, that means that the promise given to Sarah has failed. Her, her, her cheeks shone like, like an olive, uh, bright like olives, uh, and now not so. Um, uh, the, okay, the fields um, have not produced food. Um, what does that mean in Chavakuk? Uh, these, um, those dead breasts um, did not make food, right? meaning that um, uh, Sarah was not producing milk because she did not have a child. Gazami miflat son. So also the, the, there's the, um, the 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 flocks and the ox and the cattle also um, are not um, they're, they're they also lack flocks and cattle. And so proof texts also to establish that flocks and cattle can actually refer to people. So verses are cited as proof texts for that. Psalm on the last line of the Hebrew. Um, uh, but then Sarah turned and said, probably. So Sarah turned and said, Shall I lose my hope in my Creator? I shall not lose my hope in my Creator. I shall rejoice in uh, the Lord. I shall, uh, uh, well, whatever uh, synonym of rejoice you want, in the uh, God of my salvation. Uh, and that's uh, the quotation from the continuation of Habakkuk. Um, all right, so in Habakkuk, we, ha uh, we have um, the, a famine is described. Um, and then um, the next verse says, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will exalt in the God of my salvation. This is imagined as Sarah and Abraham, in particular Sarah. Um, uh, Sarah um, reflecting on 
the failure of the promise of the angels, um, and nevertheless um, holding out hope. Amar la Kadosh Baruch Hu said to her, the Holy One, blessed be He, at la ugat svarich afana leit mo vitzvarich ela lash shem pakadet sarak hasherah not to destroy your hope, but rather uh, in the word of Paul Sarah. Uh, as he had said. Um, and so, yeah, so I, I, well, here, uh, I mean, it's only one line over here, but the one line really kind of situates us in this narrative, um, that this narrative of uh, anxiety and near despair uh, is occurring after the visit of the angel. It turns from despair and, um, and uh, uh, I'm getting us back to um, uh, source three in Kadir, uh, and God. Um, and God um, says, right, he will not destroy your hope, and he doesn't. And so I think that that is, in fact, the very same thing that's going on uh, in the case of Kalir, that he has imagined Sarah in Rosh Hashanah following the angel's visit, and um, uh, and uh, Sarah is in that state of, okay, I have been promised, but uh, the promise doesn't dictate the future in a kind of deterministic way. There's a lot of unknown. And uh, can one really trust that promise? Who really was the agent of that promise? Um, and um, and God, um, attentive to her prayer, attentive to her anxiety, remembers her on that very day. Uh, all right. And so, um, so, so, so I think that's what's going on in Kalir. And I think we see the precedent for it in, in, in this uh, treatment in Genesis Rabbah. It's interesting. And this tree takes us uh, kind of from the story of Sarah uh, to um, more about uh, the uh, the question of kind of how the rabbis told their stories and what sort of stories they were interested in telling. Um, with this very narrative uh, that we see in Source 6 of Sarah uh, kind of reflecting on uh, the failure, apparent failure of the promise of the angels, we see the very same story almost in Another, at another place in Genesis Rabbah. So this is Genesis Rabbah 68. So this is later on in Genesis Rabbah. It is from the story of um, Yaakov leaving um, uh, to uh, Aram Naharayim, to his, um, to his mother's family, uh, because he fears the violence of Esav. Uh, and that story is read through Psalm 121. Rabbi Shmuel bar Nachman Patach, Rabbi Shmuel bar Nachman opened, or yeah, opened here is a technical exegetical term meaning to kind of solve the riddle of a verse. You have a verse that speaks in generalities, and this rabbi is going to uh, uh, um, untie the verse and explain to us what exactly it's referring to. Shir lama uh, I lift up my eyes to the hills. Um, what does that mean? Um, so, um, uh, um, so, uh, rather, I'm sorry, um, so it is Isaac who is considering his parents and his teachers, those who preceded him. May I never says the psalm. Whence will my help come? From where will my help come? Uh, what is what is that really referring to? Says the exegete. Eliezer right, When Eliezer went to take Rivka as a wife for Yitzchak, what does it say there? What's written there? That he took ten camels, uh, etc. But I have brought nothing with me. Um, this is so. This is Yaakov despairing uh, that he has uh, nothing. Chazar. Lamar, uh, and but he turned and said, "Ma anamovitz sivri sivari min barai? Shall I um, shall I lose hope in my Creator? Chasu shalom that I should lose hope in my Creator, but rather ezri meim Hashem." So, so in Shir Hamalot, this this song of the Sent Shir Hamalot one twenty one, uh, we also have this um, scene of. Uh, apparent despair, and then a sudden turn. Um, as remain Hashem, my help, in fact, will come 
from God. Uh, and this is taken as a reference to uh, Yaakov when he is fleeing um, um, his house, uh, when he is fleeing from uh, from Esav, when he is uh, going to his family. Uh, and so we see here the same dynamic of um, really the same story and, and, and uh, in, in, at many points, uh, the very same words uh, in this narrative of Yaakov um, as we do in the case of Sarai. So this does raise the question, right? If you're interested, uh, as say, as a scholar of rabbinic literature and thinking about, well, how does this, uh, what, what has happened here? Uh, how is it that we have these two passages uh, that are so similar um, that uh, where the almost identical exegesis is occurring is one of these more original uh, and then it has been transferred from the one to the other um, or are these simply kind of two instantiations of a kind of a general exegetical paradigm. So this is a question uh, that one might ask if you're interested in thinking about how these texts in Genesis Rabbah come about. Uh, that's a, and if people have thoughts about that, I'm happy to, um, to get into that. I do have a, a, a theory about how these texts relate to each other genealogically, which one of them is first. I do think there is an earlier one or later one here. Um, but in any case, uh, what we see over here in, uh, in joining source six to source seven is a rabbinic interest in this, um, in exploring this uh, emotional state, uh, this moment between um, despair and hope. Um, and so I, I, so I, I wanna turn from there then to the kind of two takeaways I think that come from looking at this source material. Uh, two kind of take home lessons as it were, one about the rabbis and one about us. Uh, and I'll go through those and then open it up for questions and comments. So first about the rabbis. Um, so this material is characteristic, uh, right? The rabbis are interested in filling in biblical gaps about characters' emotions. Uh, and they're interested in that for two reasons. First, uh, they're commentators on a canonical text. They assume that it's maximally meaningful and they want to draw out uh, that meaning to make available all of that meaning. That's true in general. Uh, but second, they're filling out this text, this biblical text within their own particular context. It's a late antique literary context that really delights in elaborating on the emotional life of its characters. Uh, and so this is a trend you don't, you, so you don't really see it in the Bible. The Bible is famously reticent about the emotional life of its characters. Uh, so to some extent, and, and scholars are kind of divided on why that is. Uh, so to some extent, um, perhaps it, it, this reflects genuinely um, less of an interest in characters' emotional life than uh, we might have. And this goes along, for example, with a certain scholarly trend, for example, to, to suggest, well, when the Bible talks about love of God, we shouldn't think first and foremost of love in an emotional sense, but we should think about it in terms, first and foremost, of a set of obligations. Love is loyalty, um, covenantal loyalty, um, uh, love as exclusive worship of God, no other. Uh, and so that may be bound up with a certain genuine uh, kind of greater uh, interest in uh, form or action over interiority. Um, so that's one explanation sort of for the Bible's reticence about the emotional lives of its characters. Another explanation for the emotional lives of its characters is that it's not that the Bible isn't interested in this, um, but it, uh, this is a way of storytelling, to kind of to leave that unsaid and to draw in the reader uh, precisely to try to kind of explore those depths. And this is to some extent what um, a famous literary scholar, Eric Auerbach, uh, was getting to in speaking of the Bible's mode of representation as being fraught with background. Um, you, you tell as you read it that there's something behind there, there is a world that is being kind of projected behind the text uh, and it's a text that kind of calls to its readers to enter into it and to complete it as it were. So those are two different and to some extent incompatible explanations for the Bible's reticence. Uh, in any case though, when we get to the second temple period, 
uh, when we get to the rabbis, we're in a context where modes of storytelling uh, are very much about um, conveying the emotional lives of characters. We see that already uh, even in late biblical narratives, like in Sefer Daniel, in an, a kind of an Aramaic storytelling tradition in the Second Temple period. And we see it also in Greco-Roman novels that are contemporaneous with the rabbis. And so this is part of what the rabbis and a figure like Kalir, who is coming soon after the rabbis that we're talking about, are interested in. Um, so that's kind of a, a take-home lesson about the about the rabbis. Um, and then about us. Um, so, um, Sarah's position on uh, Rosh Hashanah as understood in these texts, as understood by Kalir, as understood in uh, Bereshit Rabbah, uh, seems to me instructive for us. Right? Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur are days that, uh, and this gets back to, I think, TTIL's original comment, uh, are days that intermingle uh, awe or fear, right? There'd be Amin uh the days of, uh, of fear, of awe, on the one hand. And on the other hand, joy. Right? There's the joy of appearing before God, um, of uh, certain confidence that God desires our prayers and our penitence um, and will receive them. Um, a certain joy in the fact that God is the shepherd and we his flock, his flock right? Uh, um, that's a, a song that is sung uh, with gusto. Um, which is Shana and Kippur. Um, but these, of course, are the days of, days of judgment. Um, and so we have this kind of intermingling. Uh, and just because we're confident of a good outcome doesn't mean that we're not also filled with trepidation. And it seems to me that this is, as the rabbis are reconstructing it more or less uh, precisely, this kind of intermingling um, of uh, confidence and anxiety uh, that, that the rabbis are are attributing uh, to Sarah coming six months after the after the promise, but with no sign yet uh, of the realization uh, of that promise. Uh, okay, so I will I will uh, stop there and open up for any questions, comments, observations. Um, if I could, uh, I, I I was wondering whether the term aguna mm. which nowadays in a, in a more modern sense means being left by a husband and could there be an illusion here not just being bereft without a child but the sensitivity or the fear of abraham uh, not uh giving her uh, you know uh, the full uh uh, uh shall we say relationship um that and and in fact uh, uh had a child by by hagar so could it and then uh that would imply uh, it perhaps being before the visitation of the angels because when the angels came then there was this sense of well maybe uh she would not be at least without the attention of uh, of Abraham. It was just a thought. Uh... Uh, yeah, yeah, it's interesting. Right? So, so it is a striking word, right? So I, I bolded and underlined it, right? This is the last last word of the of Khalil's passage. And um, right, and so so I, I think, um, right, that, that that is our our usage uh, nowadays, of course, of Aguna. Um, uh, yeah, uh, uh, but, uh, but there is, uh, uh, yeah, so. <laughs> Um, so, the, the, but we, we do need to uh, uh, yeah, um, to uh, to distinguish. Uh, yeah, I think probably oh, um, Kalir's usage over here. There, there is the, the kind of attested usage um, in Piyut, and Piyut is to some extent a um, you know a language unto itself. There is a kind of a Pythonic tradition, uh, and so. Uh, the truth is, I'd have to look further to see uh, sort of what the what the distribution of the term is, um, but it but it does have a um, um, a sense of uh, loneliness that isn't kind of specifically connected to um, 
uh, to what we uh, what we think of when we use the term ugly now. Um, so, um, but that is an interesting idea, right? But though I don't think even if that um, kind of is the connotation or a connotation in Khalil's text, um, I don't think that would necessarily tip the scales um, any further in the direction of placing this prayer before uh, Rosh Hashanah, uh, before the angel's visit, rather, I'm sorry, um, because one would say the same thing of Sarah's relationship to Abraham as one would, I think, of the expectation of a child. Uh, and just like um, the promise of a child, as Kalir is telling us, I think, and certainly as the rabbis are telling it in Rashid Rabbah, in Genesis Rabbah, just as the promise of a child doesn't actually end the anxiety, uh, because uh, yeah, promises are not deterministic that way in biblical narrative and not in the way the rabbis are retelling it either. Um, it, wouldn't, it wouldn't be deterministic uh, in, in the anxiety vis-a-vis -vis Sarah's relationship with Abraham either. Uh, but it's it's a very interesting uh, yeah observation on that word. Uh, truth be told, yes, I, I would want to uh, explore the connotations of that word more. Yeah, are there uh, thoughts or um, questions? Uh, yes, uh, serious. Um, so this may be a little far fetched, but I was thinking of when um, Sarah first offers Hagar to Abraham, and then when Hagar starts to treat Sarah lightly, she gets very angry at Abraham, and she says, alecha, and she says to Mishpot Hashem beniu benecha, mm -hmm. and I feel like then X years later, 13 years later, um, on Yom Hadin, Hashem does judge beniu, you know, the beniu benecha by giving Sarah the, 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 the conception of a child. Um. Uh, that's interesting, right? So, so in other words, so the, the, the language of uh, of Yishpot there is striking, uh, right? When we uh, I'm picking up know, on the Yom Hadin and the Yishpot, and yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. It's interesting, right? I mean, well, I mean, what's what's uh, you know, I right again, I don't I don't know that this is part of the um, uh, you know the intention, say, of the of the rabbis. There, obviously, we need more, I think, evidence to uh, kind of suggest that that this is part of the intention of the rabbis. But I think. Uh, you know, it's it's part of the, the the work of the rabbis is to kind of create a much uh, denser text, as it were, through their through their work of, um, you know, what a, a scholar Joshua Levinson, uh, who has studies Amoraic midrash, calls the exegetical narrative, right, a narrative that is at the same time interpreting verses, but then essentially spinning out a new story on the basis of that interpretation, uh, and so it doesn't invite one to kind of consider. Um, New links uh, um, in, in light of that. So yeah, it is so that it's striking. I mean, we have all sorts of judgment uh, judgment motifs around the uh, around the Abraham and Sarah stories, um, and of course the Ishmael uh, or the Ishmael uh, uh, scene uh, itself, right, with Ishmael in the wilderness, is imagined also as a kind of uh, judgment scene by the rabbis. Right, so Ishmael is in the wilderness, dying of thirst, um, and uh, God expresses the uh, the desire to save him and the angels um, attempt to intervene and say, is this person really worthy of saving? We'll have descendants who will persecute um, uh, Israel and um, uh, right, God, uh, God's uh, insists right, that he judges a person as his <clears throat> uh, and not as he may be in the future. Um, right? So, uh, yeah, so there are sorts of uh, Judgment narratives sprouting up all around, uh, all around this text. Great. Uh, yeah. Any other uh, final uh, thoughts or comments or observations about the uh, questions about this material? Oh, and I see in the chat. Does Isaac only need six months to gestate? Uh, yeah, that is. Uh, it is. Yeah. So I, I mentioned this uh, this briefly. Right. This this question of the uh, of gestation time it does seem. Although I'm happy to entertain other thoughts about it, but it does seem that if you put together those two sources, the one, and, and the, the, each of those two sources is paralleled in a number of places in rabbinic literature. Um, but if you put together those two sources, namely the, um, the conception on Rosh Hashanah and the birth on Pesach, uh, then you're kind of committed to that kind of gestation. Uh, six and a half month gestation, um, and then yeah, how one uh, how that actually happens is <laughs> a puzzle. Uh, yeah. Uh, oh yeah, on that one. Which gives Sarah. 
which gives Sarah extra reason to be feeling despondent at the six month period. Like if, if she understood this to be a promise within a year, it seems like that's no longer really possible. And then so then she starts thinking, I've been judged. Like I must have, I've messed this up somehow, um, which adds kind of another a, a compelling reasoning to her to her sorrow. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Yeah, and and while, while the rabbis kind of don't kind of explicitly mention that this whole notion of it being only uh, uh, there only being as it were six months left before the the promise could be fulfilled, or a little bit more than that, is not something that the rabbis kind of mention explicitly. But it's really close to um, um, to the rabbis imagining this as a situation of Sarah despairing about the promise. That I think, yeah, I think that could well be uh, favoring in. Uh, they're imagining the situation or they're imagining Sarah's mindset. Yeah, so great point. All right, so um, I said I would be mindful of the time and I think we did reach it. So I, I am uh, happy to uh, to follow up with uh, any further thoughts um, offline, via email, etc. cetera. Um, you know where to, I teach at the University of Notre Dame. Uh, they have a web presence. <laughs> Happy to field further questions, uh, but thank you again for uh, coming up, participating, and your and for your thoughts and insights. Thank you. Okay, so thank, thank you, you. Uh, thank you, Dr. Novick, for a wonderful class, and thank you to everyone here for participating, for being part of Drisha's learning community. While this was, in fact, our final class before Rosh Hashanah, we do have more classes scheduled during Tishrei wherever we could fit them in around the holidays, thank God, um, with Dr. Talia Fishman, with Rabbi Silber. Um, the annual Stanley Rudolph Memorial Lecture will be delivered this year by Ms. Rachel uh, Sharansky-Danziger. Um, and we have one more event uh, for Kol Homo at Sukkot. Hopefully we'll get information about that soon, God willing. Um, our Rosh Hashanah Music and Liturgy podcast are all out, so please give them a listen. You can learn more at ll.drisha.org. And on behalf of everyone at Drisha, I'd like to wish you Shana Tova and Um Meituka. Uh, we hope that the learning you have done with us will help enrich your experience of the holidays. And be well and good night. <laughs> Thank you. Stop.